Hello and welcome to the School Should Be podcast, a platform that amplifies voices in education to talk about all the things school should be. My name is Zahara and I used to teach English in secondary schools in the UK and I now lead on diversity and inclusion within education. I love amplifying often unheard voices, experiences and practices in schools which we need to consider to create an education system that is suitable for all young people. I really hope these conversations reveal that if we listen with compassion and understanding, school can be a place where every student thrives. Really hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. And as always, I really appreciate your support. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the School Should Be podcast. I'm really excited today, kind of a little bit starstruck, really, um, to be joined by um, Natasha Devon. Hi, Natasha. Hello, thank you for having me. No, thank you for being here. So Natasha is a broadcaster, author, a mental health campaigner, and presents a weekly show um, on LBC, um, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, and has written several books around um, mental health for young people, um, including Ace Your Exams, Toxic, uh, which is a fiction um, novel, um, Clicks, and also the soon-to-be-released Babushka which is next week, right? It's coming out next week. Yeah, it's squeaky bum time. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of pre-sales and stuff, yeah, it's out yeah. next Thursday the 5th. That's so exciting. And um, Natasha, I mean, I know I've given like that sort of general overview, which is probably more of your career than it is about you specific. But how did you, I'd love to know how you kind of got into the work more. And I still remember the first time I met you, which was at a head teachers conference about five or six years ago. And you were speaking around um, mental health for young people and how we support it. And so much has happened since that point and probably before that point. So it would be great to know how you got into this area of, of necessary work. Um, so I have been going into schools now since 2008. And initially, I was just newly in recover recovery from an eating disorder at the time. Um, and I didn't know back then that the eating disorder was a really bad coping strategy for underlying anxiety. I hadn't had my diagnosis of anxiety yet. So initially, I think I was motivated by a desire to make that time. So I, I had an eating disorder for eight years in total. And I think I viewed it as a waste of life and I had this desire to make it mean something. Um, and so the idea of going into schools and speaking to young people and kind of helping them to learn from my mistakes, I guess, was what originally got me into this. And then uh, my perspective changed because, well, first of all, I, I, I got better from my eating disorder, as mm. in I stopped the eating disorder behavior, but I still was in a lot of distress mentally. And so I went back again and had therapy and learned that I have an anxiety disorder and, and was doing mental health training at the same time, which was really interesting actually, because it, I could apply some of what I was learning to myself yeah. and realized that I've actually been having panic attacks since I was 10 but wow. they kept being misdiagnosed. So I was misdiagnosed with asthma and then allergies and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I realized that, that actually the power of my story is its mundanity. You know, I had a, had a couple of, they're called adverse childhood experiences, aren't they? You know, I had a mm. bereavement. I had a brother that was born very, very premature. Mm. And 
being the eldest child felt that I kind of had to internalize all of the sort of anger and confusion I was feeling at that time um, and started having panic attacks because it was, I guess, the only way for those emotions to come out. Mm-hmm. And then just kept dealing with that really, really badly throughout my life. And I feel like that could happen to anyone. And I was sort of reflecting on my mental health education, people my age didn't. It was very much focused on the extremes, which I think is why I didn't recognize it when it was happening to me. Mm. Because I was never hospitalized, you know, I was never sectioned. I never nearly died of my eating disorder. You know, I was never homeless. These were the stories that we heard and they were important stories and they should definitely form part of the, the picture when it comes to mental health. But I wanted to um, make mental health a little bit more of a universal conversation. Um, So that's where the idea came from to ask young people, what are you struggling with day to day? And it doesn't have to be mental illness. It can just be things that affect your mental health and your ability Mm. to function and your behavior. And then I worked with um, neuroscientists and psychologists to come up with lesson plans based on their responses. And and it's things like exam stress and body image insecurity and social media addiction. And it's, first of all, to give them practical tips on the things that they're actually facing day to day, but it's also to get them thinking about mental health, even if they don't consider that they might have mental illness. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting that like, like you said, the way panic attacks when you were as young as 10 were were panic attacks but mistaken or whatever the situation might have been interpreted as or manifested as asthma from a GP from a medical perspective um and it wasn't until adulthood and mental health training therapy and kind of that like self-aware not self-awareness but the understanding of mental health has so many different ways of being interpreted and there probably are you're right just as you were talking I was thinking it is those lived experiences that form our mental health which I think and even young people today considering the amount of knowledge and free knowledge they have access to even your information we are still shoeboxing mental health and mental illness into a particular into particular categories that you have to you know like you said, you might have had severe, like the trauma, it, the trauma in itself has to be really, really severe to you to be recognized as having mental health or mental illness. Um, but that that's really interesting. And it kind of leads into the second question I wanted to ask you, really, which is that schools and parents and teachers know that mental health within young people is like an epidemic like it's something that now more than ever especially post covid or maybe even before covid and it's just covid has magnified it needs to be focused on for young people um but i think there is still that lack of understanding or awareness of the difference between mental health mental illness and then well-being um so could you explain what 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 they are i guess the differences between them It's so interesting that you say that because I think that the future of the mental health conversation has got to be one of greater specificity Mm -hmm. because at the moment we're using this nebulous term mental health for someone who is suicidal and can't be left alone and somebody who doesn't want to do their homework, you know, and, and, and they're both things that need addressing, but they require very, very different 
responses. And, uh, you know, if you think of it in terms of physical health, it would be ridiculous for me to say to you, I've got a physical health issue and for me to expect you to know exactly what I meant and what it is that I need from you. Um, yes, so I, yeah. I think we need to sort of really nail down into the specifics. But the, the way I always describe it is you've got your diagnosable mental illnesses. That's something that a doctor could diagnose based on your symptoms, based on a set of criteria. So that's things like clinical depression, anxiety disorders, eating disorders, bipolar disorder. That would That's one column of the conversation. Right. Then you've got well-being, and that's think of it like eating your fruit and veg and you know, getting exercise and drinking water. Yeah. These are basic rules. Here's how you look after a brain. Yeah. And and interestingly, because the brain and the body don't exist in silos, a lot of the rules are the same. Do some exercise, mm. get enough sleep, yeah, etc. And then you've got this middle layer, which is where my work is concentrated, and it's things that affect your mental health, but they're not mental illnesses. So it's anything that affects your ability to focus, concentrate, perform, or might affect your relationship with the people around you because it's impacting your behavior. Mm. And that's things like everyday stress and anxiety, for example, but it's not a disorder. It's just something that you are struggling with. I also think the other thing that I'm working with, and this is younger children, but they've picked up the idea from somewhere. So it, it must be something that adults are giving them the impression of. When I talk to primary school children and I say to them, how would you know if somebody was mentally healthy? They very often say, oh, they'd be happy all the time. Mm. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's a conflation that shouldn't be happening. And a mentally healthy person feels things in a timely fashion so there are things that make you sad and angry and frustrated and anxious and they're not pleasant feelings but they are part of the human experience and if you are able to feel them without distracting yourself and then sort of process them and learn from them and move on that's what mental health is it's right. not avoiding the difficult feelings if you if you see what I mean yeah it's like um not coping but just navigating your own sense of self your own self-awareness to a certain extent um and knowing how to yeah navigate the, your feelings and your emotions and that's so interesting you say that because I think as I said just before we started recording my son's just started school and as soon as he comes home I'm like did you have a good time were you happy were there friends and he's looking you know he is quite um you know, he's been described by, you know, by his teacher as quite timid. And he, he said to me sometimes, mommy, stop asking me, like, mm. and I realize it's, you're right, it is my, maybe that's my insecurity as well. And my, you, like you said, you sort of impart your own sometimes child, well, not you said, I, I think sometimes my own childhood experiences or trauma, whatever you want to call it, lived experiences, I'm then thinking he's going to experience it too. And I need him to be happy all the time because that's what social media tells us <laughs> and yeah. that's yeah that brings me on to do you think do you think then in terms of the middle area that you that your work is mainly concentrated within um has social media made a difference to that in terms of do you find it's exacerbated this perception of happiness that and and then uh, the the blurred lines between mental health equals happy all the time 
I think what social media it's so difficult right because it's you don't want to demonize social media and I know lots of people who have symptoms that aren't being recognized and this is particularly actually people from ethnic minority backgrounds mm. or or um religious minority backgrounds where their symptoms don't neatly fit into the diagnostic criteria or their experiences don't neatly fit because the environment and the social norms that they're living by the the diagnostic criteria just weren't designed with them in mind mm. so what they've done is they've looked at an influencer of a similar background from them saying well this is how it happened in my family and they've gone oh okay and they've actually recognized what it is that they're grappling with through access to social media so it's not always a bad thing but I do think that sometimes if you were paying attention to TikTokers, for example, you would be too quick to pathologize whatever it was that you were going through. And, and that's what we do with these kind of center, center column issues. People tend to go one of two ways with it. They either immediately pathologize it and treat it as though it is definitely mental illness mm. or they go completely the other way and they say, young people need to be more resilient. They need to suck it up. This didn't exist in my day both equally unhelpful responses yeah they're both binaries i guess they're still not listening potentially to the to the young people um in in the middle and so for parents and teachers really who i guess the binaries are what we hear a lot um we hear, we hear a great deal no no we hear a great deal that um it is uh social media and I, to be fair i'm guilty of that you know i as much as i i know that social media the amount the greatness that it has you know the the richness it has added is, is, is can't be ignored it's it's brilliant for so many reasons but equally in my even for me I think it's having a detrimental impact on young people um and then when I think of parents who are even some of them further removed from socials like they you know there are so many parents I've spoken to who haven't even clicked onto TikTok or don't know what Snapchat is um how do you explain to, to parents who are who see their children wanting phones on socials from primary school age like you know following tiktok trends i see it down the local park like sometimes when i'm with my kids at the park i'm like i'm like why are they on their phone like the other children and i'm like yeah. oh they're doing a tiktok thing like they're trying to, and how do you how can parents navigate that space and even ask questions about ai social media and then their children's mental health? That's a really big question, sorry. <laughs> it's an opportunity for a conversation though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Is if you don't understand something that your child is really into, you can ask them, you know, what, well, explain it to me, what is it? And what do you like so much about it? And what do you get out of it? And you are learning about the technology at the same time. That's also a bonding opportunity as well, because you're showing an interest in something that your child really cares about. And yeah. I, I think there's a misconception that you need to know everything about technology in, in order to be able to have the conversation. You're never gonna know as much as your child and the yeah. trends change so quickly. And, and you know, when I wrote clicks, yeah, the, really the only form of, of social media that I'm on is Instagram. And that's me living by what I preach because Twitter has become just a, a hellhole of hate speech. Yeah. TikTok, I, I feel like would be dangerous for my productivity if I, yeah. got, if I got on that. <laughs> Snapchat, I'm way too old for. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, you know, Instagram is really the, the only um, 
the only place in terms of social media where, where I feel like it's supportive and interesting and I'm actually getting something out of it. Mm. So that's where I live, you know, social yeah. media wise. But the principles are the same. You know, if you can understand the broad brushstrokes, if you're on Facebook, you can understand what your child's getting out of TikTok. It looks different, yeah. but the principles are the same. Yeah, that's so true. And also, like you said, potentially it's about figuring out which platform your child now, and I think for many teenagers now, it's Twitter, uh, not Twitter, um, or X or whatever it's going to be called next. Um, yeah. um, it's probably TikTok. Um, because interestingly, like thinking of young people and trying for them to to try and have boundaries, like boundaries are something even I, like you said, I, to be fair, I don't feel like I do have a life. All I end, all I feel like I do is scroll. Every time that um, weekly alert comes through about this is your screen time was up by 5% last week. I sort of cringe a little bit. Um, how can young people put in boundaries then for themselves? Because I guess they do look to adults to put in, to support them with boundaries. I myself, I'm very aware and perhaps many teachers and even uh, parents are that we spend so much time on our own devices. We probably struggle to put boundaries in for ourselves. Mm. Um, how would you, to support young people's mental health, mental fitness, I've heard it described as as well, um, how can they set themselves boundaries and almost self-advocate and take control, empower themselves with that tool? Well, I think if you're setting rules in your household for social media use, you need to follow them as well. So if, if the rule is no phones at the dinner table, there's no phones at the dinner table, you know, for, yeah. for anyone. Um, I also, I know parents who, if they are on their phone, they tell their children, this, this is normally if they've got younger children, but they say, this is what I'm doing. You know, mommy's just ordering an Uber. Or, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just sending yeah. an email. So they know that they're not, just distracted by their phone and you know not interested in in what's going on um i think that the aim with young people is to teach them self-regulation because you're not always going to be there and yeah. i think first of all the key is to catch them when they're not gaming or they're not scrolling because they're not in a good headspace to have that conversation then. yes yeah um, and and when you talk to young people and you say you know what is a reasonable amount of time do you think to spend on social media each day they normally give a pretty reasonable answer. The discrepancy is between the ideal amount of time and the amount of time that's actually yes. being spent. Yes. Um, and there are actually some some practical tips in clicks for things that they can do, things like setting alarms and uh, writing out a question list to ask themselves. And it, it's it's basically creating space between urgent action. There's, there's a lot about this in um, addiction therapy where um, there's a kind of beaten space and of space and time between the urge to do something and actually doing it. And if you can intervene in that beat of space and time, you stand a better chance of um, your conscious brain getting involved and making a good decision. That's like Mel Robbins. I remember watching and reading some of her stuff about the five second rule. That yeah. if you count down, and this is something that she went through herself, but if you, if you don't, like if you want to get off, social media or um you feel that you're in a headspace and you kind of want to not completely like you know in a, like a fairy tale going oh I'm going to be happy now but almost just thinking right I need to think differently you count down from five to just sort of like you said and it sounds very similar to the the time between the urge and the action mm. um, which and do you find um when you're working with young people and I guess this is probably 
yeah, like a question for me as well in terms of when we're reading our direct messages or the comments, especially the level of abuse that we see online, like you said, Twitter especially is just it's just nasty, like more than nasty, really. It's just not a place to 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 be at all. But people are still on it. People are still posting and trying to find that place. How how can young people how can young people navigate that you know because you're reading in silence aren't you most of the time you're yeah. watching in silence and then all of a sudden you look up and sometimes there's not people around you to talk to about what you've just you don't want to because you're scared especially if I always think a teenager some of the stuff they must see and process they probably don't like are they allowed to talk about it the shame associated with talking about it how can young people navigate that space um I I do think that the social media companies really have a responsibility here. I'm an ambassador for a charity called Glitch. Yes. Um, yeah. And that was founded by Shay Yakiwowo, who, who talks a lot about how women of color in particular, the disproportionate amount of abuse that mm. they will receive. That's that's not okay. You know, just telling people that it's part of the user experience and if they don't like it to come off social media, well, you're losing some people from the discussion then. And mm -hmm. Elon Musk himself described Twitter or X, as we're supposed to call it now, as a, a global marketplace of ideas. Well, it's not a global marketplace of ideas if certain people are being bullied out of the conversation. So you have a duty to ensure that they have not a 100% positive experience, but they're not you know that people have a right not to be harassed and Absolutely. um so i i think you can't put it all on the user H having said that and again this is something i talk about in clicks like i feel like there's two types of people in the world no three there's three types of people in the world <laughs> right so there's a piece of content could be a, a book could be um a tv show anything you know a piece of artistic content You've got the people like me who will only comment on it really if they are uh, delighted by it or certainly contact the originators of that content. So sometimes I'm angry and I'll make a comment, but I will never direct it at the person. Yes. Yeah. I will only be moved to send someone a message if I have read their book or I've just seen them on TV and I think they're amazing. And then I'll contact them and be like, you're amazing. <laughs> right. So that's your first time person. The second type of person who's is the person who only comments if they are angry about mm. something and they want to seek out the person and tell them how angry they are. And then the third person is the person who does neither of those things. They're just, you know, they, I think probably self-aware enough to know that their opinion doesn't really matter that much to, to, to like, that person. I think like I've seen so many memes about millennials, which I guess I, I am. We are, we are like the, yeah. the meme about um, you're the lurker. So yeah, like you watch and see everything and you know what's going on, but you know, you just, you just lurk. And I was like, I don't really like that. Um, I, I feel seen, but I don't like feeling seen. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it's like, if you imagine that there's 10 people on the internet and you put out a piece of content, one person's going to think it's great. Two people are going to be angry about it because people are looking for an excuse to be angry. And then the remaining seven are going to go, meh. Yeah. So you're going to hear from 30% of the audience who have seen your piece of content. And you are going to get a, a very inaccurate idea of how that piece of content was received. And that's the only way to rationalize it, really. Mm. Because it, otherwise, you'd never do anything. 
absolutely yeah yeah you're right and it is it, although you feel and I felt it and that's probably me asking more for advice for myself really like <laughs> you feel paralyzed in the moment like you you really do like you've put something out and it's scary it's scary putting content out it's scary putting your yeah, it is it is I I think there is fear associated with it that you know you want to write it because you, you have a certain or you want to say it um and you know that it's good or informative or purposeful but then you do worry about the the, the backlash or the things that are going to come in even if they're good even if they're really positive but understanding that that is literally 30 percent that that's not even like yeah it's it's not 100 percent by any means it feels like 100 percent, but it's not um and equally i guess encouraging young people to talk about it to take yeah. what they've seen especially if it's problematic and um dangerous that they need to go talk to a trusted adult about it mm. and you know what sometimes being the center of a pylon is you know just the worst thing ever and it's because you've come to the attention of you, you know the wrong person from a group who who do this they they target people um and you just have to hide under a table until it's over and hope they don't find your address um yeah. but sometimes you learn from it like there have been times there was once for example where i was talking about you know the gender critical movement who are they're yes. basically anti-trans but they call yes. themselves gender critical and you know how they always say oh if we if we divide things like changing rooms and toilets according to gender rather than physical uh, biological sex mm. then a, a a cis male predator could pretend to be a trans yes. woman right? yeah and i was saying and i thought this was really a clever argument i was like but if we're dividing it according to genitals then what's to stop that cis male predator saying i'm a trans man mm. in order to enter the the women only space like that's yeah. easier in, in many ways like and yeah. i thought that that was a good argument because it made a nonsense of what they were saying but then i got lots of trans men getting in contact with me saying look predators don't have to pretend to be anything a sign on a door is not going to keep them out of anywhere. That's true, yeah. And can yeah. you not spotlight us in this? Because, you know, yeah. we're watching what trans women are going through in terms of being painted as, as predatory. Mm. And all you're doing is sort of pivoting that towards us. And I was like, as much as it wasn't nice to have loads of people who were really angry with me, mm. I was like, they've got a point. Yeah. they've got a point i won't make that argument again i'll just say what they said don't have to pretend to be anything and that's really interesting because i was reading a book called factfulness by mm. hans rosling and, and he says and it's about facts like things that we've mistaken and don't understand or you know we've turned into facts but aren't and one of the things he writes about which is really similar to the argument that you made not about trans people but about the fact that lots of us understand things through comparison so yeah. so in order to so even if a young person sees something online, where even when they go on to interpret it, the way they sort of internalize and interpret it is by com subliminally or consciously comparing it to something that they know. And you don't want to weaponize or offend or, yeah, neg want that to be negative. But I guess when we write things, like it can come out like that. But the fact that Somebody else at you know the university that I work at said that you have to have the mindset. We were talking about mental health, and they said that you have to have the mindset that um, you're willing to listen and learn. 
effectively. Like if you really want to navigate even your own mental health and manage um, opinions that are coming at you, just understand that there's no fixed set. You, there might there's lots of fixed sets of truths. There's not just one fixed set of truth. So when coming back to social media, like we were saying that when a when a student sees something online it's almost like just be more intentional in questioning it thinking there are lots of things online this isn't the only truth or not yeah. untruth Does, I don't know if that makes sense sorry yeah but the, also <laughs> we do also as a species have to have an agreed set of truths that we yes. all agree yeah. because I, I was listening to I don't know if you ever listened to uh pod save the UK it's um Nish Kumar yeah. and, and uh Coco Khan okay really really good like weekly roundup of the the news uh essentially and and discussing things and um Coco Khan said this thing and I thought that is such a succinct way of putting it, where she said, um, conspiracy theories are not critical thinking. And I feel like what's happening on the Internet at the moment is there's lots of people who are who are starting with something that's true, i.e. society's not working. The one percent are getting richer. Everyone else is getting poorer. Yes. Um, you know, lots of people feel disenfranchised. But that's true. And then they're like, and the reason is that. I don't know that they're, they're trying to monitor you through the COVID vaccine or, or, you know, the Queen's yeah. Elizabeth or, and, yeah. and you're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> a left turn has been taken there somewhere. Yeah. And that's not critical thinking. That's conspiracy thinking. Yeah. So, you know, you're sort of like, okay, dial it back a bit, you know, let's, yeah. let's, let's sort of explore the shades of gray here. And that's kind of what we want young people to do. Like to, 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 because you're right, they will be exposed to lots of conspiracy theories and it's, you know, take that step back and thinking like, I guess we've spoken quite, you know, I feel like we've spoken about loads as well as like mental health and well-being. But do you think, especially in like, like the intersectional approach to, to mental health, and you mentioned earlier um, for um, ethnic minorities and minoritized groups, we don't always see ourselves in um mental health advice or books um that have been i think now it's it is getting better but yeah. for a long time there hasn't been and there still is a massive disparity in the understanding of mental health for minoritized people um is there an is there a different way to look at intersectional mental health um especially when we're thinking of boys and girls as well like even looking at gender like you were saying before mental health of different genders well it, as you said before our mental health is related to our experience of the world um and there are there's five statistics that i always whip out in relation to this okay so um racialized people are more likely to experience a severe mental health issue but less likely to see a positive outcome from treatment mm -hmm. LGBTQ plus people are four times more likely to self-harm. Women are three times more likely to receive a diagnosis of depression. Men are three times more likely to need to seek help for drug or alcohol dependency. And then the, the bottom 20% income bracket in the UK are three times more likely to experience mental illness across the board. Mm. And I feel like if you take those five statistics, what that very clearly tells you is that mental illness is not about this individual and their brain brain being broken. This is these are structural problems um, yeah. with the society that we have created and different people's experience of that society. And, you know, if you look at that one about women. So that's always taken as 
oh, women are lucky because they can it, they can talk about their mental health more openly and they're therefore more likely to be diagnosed and receive the help that they need. And there is an element of truth insofar as there is generally speaking less stigma amongst women talking about your mental health than there is amongst men. But that's only one corner of the story because mm -hmm. there's a study that came out recently that showed that young women in particular are more likely to be told that they are exaggerating, that they mm -hmm. are hysterical. They're more likely to be dismissed because it is more commonplace to talk about your, your mental health. And also women are more likely to be diagnosed with depression when the reasons that they went to their doctor were hormonal or even when they're in physical pain, which yes. explains some of the higher diagnoses. Furthermore, the whole thing about, I, I feel like the, the male suicide rate, which is, I mean, women are catching up, which is not the equality anyone wanted, mm. but it's so often weaponized by people who want to argue that feminism has gone too far. But when you look at the, the reasons that men are dying by suicide, you know, retirement age, for example, is a, a point of vulnerability for mm. men. And what, what's the reason for that? Well, it's because that man has grown up in a society where he has been told that his job is his identity yeah. and his purpose, that he must be the provider or else he has no worth. Who invented those rules? the patriarchy yeah so feminism yeah. benefits everyone it's not a man versus woman um problem it's an everybody versus the problem problem um so you can't you know you have to think in a sort of universal way and link these things together otherwise it all gets very very tribal in a way that's unhelpful i think and we almost need to remember it's our responsibility as adults to support young people in navigating that we can't just expect them always to self-advocate and find the you know find their own way of course there needs to be a level of res resilience and understanding but equally it's our responsibility as the adults now I think to to support them and help them and I guess men it's one other thing you know this week we was happy um uh, the, the murder of the 15-year-old student in, in Croydon. Um, there have, I was thinking about this, and I know we very, very briefly spoke about it just before the podcast, in that as a teacher, I can just imagine like, you know, and unfortunately I, I, I've lost students, um, not to knife crime, but for, you know, another way, and it's a loss. And it's it's one of those things where, there's a lot of conversation or online discussion at the moment about knife crime and um, misogyny and toxic masculinity and keeping our girls safe. I wonder if there's a wider conversation about how we got to this point and the mental health and the mental fitness, you know, mental of these of these of these young people who are carrying around weapons or doing this and. I just, if you wouldn't mind, like just exploring that for a little bit. I mean, it, I talk to um, to teenagers about uh, this time I was sent on um, as an assignment when I used to be a magazine columnist, I was sent to a consent workshop. It wasn't called a consent workshop back then, but that's what it was. And one of the things that we had to do was we had to get into pairs and ask each other questions that didn't really matter like you know can I move your drink or yeah you know can we go and stand in the corner of the room and then 
when you heard a question, you had to say no and nothing else, which I think particularly as a woman is something that we're not used to doing, just yes. saying no with no explanation. But what was really interesting was when the roles were reversed and then I had to ask the question and then the person I was paired with was saying no. What I wasn't prepared for was the visceral reaction I would have to that and how offended I was that they didn't want to go and stand in the corner of the room with me. I didn't even want to stand in the corner of the room. But you feel a rejection when you hear the word no. And what the the leader of this workshop was saying is, if you hear the word no, it's because of the person who is saying no's boundaries, not you. Mm. So you can't take it personally. And I thought, wow, that's such a good lesson to learn. So what I, when I tell them that story, I'm like, now is a really good time to practice this. Practice it with your friends, yeah. people that you feel safe with, saying no, but also hearing no and noticing your reaction and then examining that and going, okay, why, why did I take offense at that? When it's clearly their boundary, it's not a reflection on, on me. You know, that's a, that's a learned behavior and it's an illogical yeah. behavior. I think there is something in that, that it's, you know, learning to, to treat everybody with respect is learning that other people have red lines yes. and you're not allowed to dictate what those red lines are because they're theirs. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we don't know exactly what happened in Croydon, but you know, I've, I've read enough details to know that you, you can't arrive at the point where that that young woman, that girl really, you know, tragically lost her life unless you have a, a very angry young man who believed that he deserved a yes from her and then, but also saw her life as less valuable than his own. So that's, mm. that's a mixture of not understanding boundaries and misogyny, which teaches you that women are less than human. Yes. Yeah. If those two things weren't present, then the knife wouldn't matter. I really hope you enjoyed that insightful and really interesting uh, conversation about mental health, mental fitness and mental well-being with Natasha Devon and how parents and teachers especially can support young people in discussing and navigating mental health, social media and just the way we connect and socialise with people. Um, and you never know, let's hope that we get Natasha back on the podcast very soon. Thanks a lot.